Now, it is, what I was going to say, you know, it's wonderful to be able to speak to uh, a, a group of people who are familiar with the book of Leviticus. We've got a few visitors tonight. Um, the, we've been doing a series in the evenings going through this, what I think is actually a really wonderful book, the book of Leviticus, probably not read very often. It's one of those that you sort of, you try and get into and you think this is really, I don't know what's going on, this is just so hard to push through. But Leviticus is a really important book, uh, and I've often said this, you know, it's, I, I think of it, uh, once, once you get a handle on it, it's like a children's picture book, which uses vivid and, I think, really, at the end of the day, quite simple pictures that you can actually see and visualize to explain how we, and this is really the whole point of the book, how we, as sinful human beings can have any sort of relationship with the God who made us. That's really what the book's all about. How can we as sinful human beings have any sort of relationship with a holy God, the God who made us? And so if you're familiar at all with what's in the book, and I suspect if you've read it at all or, or, or whatnot, then you'll know that it's got these sorts of contents in it. So you've got offerings in it. And the offerings show us how you, should, how, you, how you can approach God as a sinful human being. How do you actually ta- take that on and approach him? And then there's grave warnings in the book about treating God casually, about coming to God the wrong way. There's some pretty scary stories about doing that that we've covered, haven't we? And then there's loads of details about the kind of things that make someone unclean And how you get clean again, because you need to be clean to come to God. And then there's lots of laws, really complicated ones and tricky ones, which explain really, in essence, the things that God loves and the things that God hates, so that we can please him by the way that we live and come to him. And right at the heart of the book, right bang in the middle of it, is chapter 16, Uh, We just had a bit of it read to us just earlier. And it's all about the day of atonement. A day when the sins of the whole nation, the whole people gathered there, all of their sins were dealt with in one day. Okay, Of course, the next day they might go and sin and ruin it all again, but that was a day in which everything was cleaned. And that is where we're hoping to land tonight. That's where we're headed. That's our Easter theme. Okay, It's exciting stuff. So I'm going to set the scene, and we're going to get into this book. If you found Leviticus a little bit tricky to get into, then just hold on to your seats. This is what it's about. The previous book is the book of Exodus. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm working nice and simple here. And Exodus is a book that ends, you know, this is the one where Moses takes the people out of Egypt. And it ends, the book closes with the nation of Israel camped in the wilderness, And they've manufactured all the different parts of the tabernacle, the tent where God is going to dwell. Uh, They've made it all according to God's designs. They've done it all the right way. And whenever they pitch camp, that tent, that tabernacle, is set up in the middle of the camp with all the Israelites camped around it. We've got a little diagram I can show you on here. That's basically what you've got. You see what's going on there, northeast, south, and west. And you've got three tribes down each side. Got that? The entrance is over on your left there, on the east side. 
Now, the first thing that you'll notice when you look at this right, the centerpiece in the middle of the camp uh, is that everything in this wilderness camp, everything here, is laden with symbolism. The tabernacle was always oriented this way. You got your compass out, or whatever it was they used in those days, probably just used the sun, I guess. And you orientated the tabernacle with the entrance on the east side. Always. You always put it that way. Always got the entrance on the east side. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 27. And so as you move westward then, and you come into this tent, you enter into the courtyard and you approach the rectangle-shaped bit there, the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place is where the presence of God is. All right, what's this all about? This is all symbolic. Now, I told you I'm going to bring together our Genesis series and our Leviticus series and bring it all together in Easter with John 20. It's quite a boast this morning if you were here. Okay, so I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you just want to flick over to Genesis 3, I I wonder if I've got it on the screen. I might do. This is the story where, yeah, look, it's on the screen. This is the story where everything goes wrong. Adam and Eve have sinned. Death and sin have entered the world. And they and their offspring are no longer fit to be in the presence of God. They are rebels. And as we've been going through those early chapters of Genesis, that's exactly what we've seen, isn't it? We've seen it. As they've gone out of the garden, you see the sinfulness of mankind just spreading rampant through the people. Right. Genesis 3, 23 to 24. Let me read it to you. It's on the screen there. So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve, him, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, out of Eden, that is, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Which side do they leave? They leave on the east side. Got it? And they cannot return westward towards God anymore. Why? Because there's stuff guarding the way. There's cherubim and a flaming sword. See? Now, this is not a coincidence. The tabernacle was set up like a little miniature Garden of Eden, right in the middle of the camp. You would approach the place where God was dwelling from the east, as if you're outside of the Garden of Eden, and now I'm going to try and get back in. And as you come into the courtyard, the first thing you would see as you enter you can see it there on on the picture there, is that that black square there. You would see the flames of the great brazen altar in the middle of the courtyard. And should you go further and try to enter into the holy place for which you'd have to be a priest, you would enter the holy place in the tabernacle tent and in front of you, you would see this great big heavy set curtain. The curtain is now all that separates you from the presence of God in the holiest place. And embroidered into that curtain are cherubim, stitched in. And behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of which has on it and is guarded by two great golden cherubim, flames and cherubim. That's what you've got as you try and come back in westward. 
There is no way that an ordinary civilian like you or me could go in where God was. And that is symbolically just broadcast through everything that you've got going on here. The tabernacle is a picture of God camping amongst his people because they can't come near him. So he's come and he's camped in their midst. So this structure then, in the middle of the Israelite camp, is a picture that captures in bold strokes the situation between God and human beings. The camp and that courtyard, they're a picture of the entire created realm in which we live. The tabernacle tent there in the middle, a picture of Eden and the presence of God. And the fire and the cherubim are yelling to you, come no closer. On pain of death, come no closer. In actual fact, if you read in chapter 10, you'll find what happens when you do come in the wrong way and try and come in any closer. As Aaron loses two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, when the fire of the Lord descends on them. God is dangerous. God is holy. Right, got it? That's, what, that's, what's, that's the geography of what's going on in the book. So how does the book start? Well, I'm pretty sure you all know it starts with seven chapters of details about the sacrifices. Chapters one to seven. And there are, and there are basically five offerings being made in the tabernacle. Five types of offering. And those five offerings are five facets of what is needed to restore the relationship between God and humanity. Again, fully symbol-laden here. Let me walk you through this. I think this is fascinating. First of all, there's the burnt offering. Okay, burnt offering. Each day began and ended with burnt offerings going on, and a whole animal was consumed, all but the skin. Verse 4 says this of chapter 1. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. This sacrifice, this first sacrifice, showed that the wrongs committed against God had been taken very seriously. Very seriously. We call that propitiation. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. We'll look at that later. Second offering. Secondly, there was the grain offering. It's in chapter 2. The grain offering. And this was an offering that was always offered along with a burnt offering. It was a sign of thankfulness and dedication to God. The one who has done wrong needs to recognize it and they need to change direction. They need to rededicate themselves. Got this? This is how you put a relationship right. You need to recognize the sin is serious and you need to make a change in direction. Third, there was the sin offering in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. That sacrifice was another animal sacrifice offered for both intentional and unintentional sins. It provided forgiveness and cleansing, the removal of guilt. To restore a relationship, the defilement and the shame of all of the wrongdoing needs to be dealt with, needs to be cleansed away. Then fourthly, there was the guilt offering. 
The guilt offering was made when someone had been unfaithful in God in regards to his holy things. God counted this as a debt that needed to be repaid. To restore a relationship, loss and damage have to be paid for, right? And then fifth and finally, there was the fellowship offering. And this final offering was above and beyond anything required. Do you remember it? It was a completely optional offering. The offerer would bring their offering, and God got the fat, and the meat was shared between the priest and the person offering it, plus, you know, family members if they so wished. The final stage in reconciliation. You want to repair a relationship? Both parties must end up able to sit down together and to eat together, symbolic of their friendship and their communion together. Everything is restored. And so the offerings take us through a process of how you mend a broken relationship. That's what they're all about. Wrongdoing must be taken seriously. The one who has done wrong needs to recognize it and to change The defilement and the shame of the wrongdoing needs to be cleansed away. Loss and damage needs to be repaid. And both parties then need to sit down and eat together in an act of friendship. You see how those offerings work? That's the first seven chapters there. They're telling you what is required to put right what has gone wrong. That's very briefly what the offering's about. But let's let's zoom in just for a second on... The number, the first one, the burnt offering. So if you want to get Genesis chapter 1 open in front of you, you could do. It would be helpful. This first offering, you see, is key to all that comes after it. This is the sacrifice of atonement. It's the burnt offering. It's a propitiation. Okay. Now, propitiation is a big theological word, and we love those, don't we? It basically means, want to know what propitiation means? To make someone propitious towards you. Is that good? (laughs) Now, propitious, (laughs) propitious is an old word, okay? It's just an old word. It simply means favorably disposed. That's what it means. So to propitiate is to make someone favorably disposed towards That's really all that's going on there. The interesting aspect of propitiation in this sacrifice is the how. This offering makes God favorably disposed towards the one making the offering. But how how is that possible? What makes God favorably disposed is that a life has been sacrificed. An animal has paid the ultimate price. As a representative of the one offering, you know, signified in, in there by him laying his hand, him or her laying their hands on the animal, they're, they're declaring that this animal is me. And, and rather than I going into the flames, it is going into the flames and being sacrificed. Now, when you think of the idea of propitiation, a couple of images I think would be, would be really, really useful. Here's a, couple of illustra- here's, here's a couple of illustrations to help you really get to grips with what propitiation means. Apparently, on Concord, 
okay? You ever you've seen Concorde? They don't exist anymore, do they? But Concorde, when we used to have supersonic flight, um, you know, back in the 70s or something, um, the Concorde had this nose that went up and down. You remember that? And you often see them sort of flying along like that. It looks very unaerodynamic. That, do you know why the nose did that? So that the bloke could see the runway a bit more clearly. That's really, it's really all, it's all, all that the nose was about. But that little cone that went up and down was actually called the propitiator. That's helpful, isn't it? Uh, and to quote uh, a science-y textbook thing, it says it, it went up to give a smooth line to the nose and protect the windscreen from kinetic heating during cruise. So once you're going supersonic and you're going really, really fast, the kinetic energy of the air heats everything up and that cone protected the windscreen of the aircraft. It's a good, it's a good illustration, isn't it? it? It absorbed, it deflected, it dealt with the heat. In actual fact, the, apparently the, uh, the uh, American Space Shuttle has a similar thing, it had a propitiation shield on the bottom of it for re-entry. You know when they re-enter through the atmosphere, you see glowing red hot, all these little tiles would glow, glow, glow. Those tiles apparently are only useful once. They had to scrape them all off and put some new ones on. It was the propitiation shield. That shield was sacrificed in the place of the aircraft or the shuttle. You get the idea. You get the point. A sacrifice is made and is burned up. It absorbs the heat and the wrath so that others are spared. They receive only cool peace and calm. Now, the burnt offering has a history in the Bible story. In actual fact, we're going to come across it in Genesis chapter 8. It was something that was already known. The first occurrence of the burnt offering, this first type of offering, was actually Genesis 8 and the story of Noah. The story of Noah begins with an account of the state of mankind, in which we're told that every inclination of their hearts were evil continually. That's the next bit of Genesis we're going to get to, actually. And so God has to judge the whole earth, and the floodwaters come, and a global catastrophe wipes out the whole population of the earth. The whole population of the earth is reduced to basically just eight people. It's brutal. But here's the shocking thing in that story. I wonder if you've noticed it. Did this act of cataclysmic judgment actually appease the wrath of God? Did it? Was God satisfied? No. Eight sinners stepped off the ark. And the first thing Noah does is he puts up an altar to sacrifice animal after animal. And only then, after the smoke of these offerings, these burnt offerings, has reached the heavens. Only then do we read Genesis 8, verse 21. Then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. The animals had propitiated the wrath of God for those eight survivors. They had gone into the flames instead of those they were sacrificed for. This is what needs to happen. We need 
a representative. Leviticus constantly calls for, actually chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, a male without any defects must be our representative. And he must go into the flames on our behalf. And on our behalf, he needs to cross the barrier between us and God, the God that we have offended and sinned against, so that we can pass safely through. This is what John the Baptist has in mind in the New Testament when he points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, a male without defects, here he is. Here is the one who will be consumed in our place so that we can come to God. That's got Easter all over it, hasn't it? The offerings, they dealt with that rift between us and God. And the pinnacle of the offerings in Leviticus is chapter 16. That's where we're going to end tonight. It's the day of atonement. The day of atonement. So get chapter 16 open in front of you. And we're going to see the role that these sacrifices play on a special day for Israel. The word atonement is actually used 16 times in chapter 16. So it's all about it, isn't it? It's all going to be about atonement. What does atonement mean? Well, when John Wycliffe, the first to translate the scriptures into English, came to translate this word with atonement from the Hebrew, there was no English equivalent at the time. So he made up this word, atonement, that we've got in our Bibles. Atonement is a compound word that means at one make. That's basically what it means. At one make. And, you know, because Wycliffe could just invent languages as we're going along. Actually, do you know what? There's like about six different spellings of his surname because nobody knew how to write anything down anyway. We were writing all kinds of crazy words. At one make, to make God and his people at one. God and people at one, atonement. That's all the word really means. And chapter 16 tells us about the day of atonement. Still celebrated today, Yom Kippurim. Not quite celebrated the same way. This was a day when atonement was made, not for an individual, like the burnt offerings, but for the whole camp, all of God's people in one go. Y you could think of it as being a little bit like a deep clean at the camp. So you've got this camp the, representing the whole of creation. We're going to do a deep clean. It's a once a year, it's springtime, spring clean sort of time, isn't it? Some describe it as the day when the entire sacrificial system in Israel was rebooted. In actual fact, part of the day was to sprinkle blood on everything to make it clean to make it pure. And this chapter now is in the middle of the book of Leviticus. Even though, chronologically, if you look at the first verses, it fits directly after chapter 10. You know, it, it comes straight after the disastrous episode with Nadab and Abihu. But wh why? Why has it been bumped forwards a few chapters? Well, a reason for that, I think, is that in Hebrew... They don't have uh, highlighters, and they don't use bold type, and they don't use underlining in their texts. If you want to highlight and draw attention to the important bit of the text, you stick it in the middle of the thing that you're writing. You draw people's eyes into the middle of the book. 
and then you know what the big point of the book, the big important bit in the book is. This great day of atonement is all about how God and people can live together. You know, as a community, how can they live together? How could a holy, pure God, a God so pure that he has to judge, has to condemn and destroy and separate from all unholiness and impurity, like us, how could God possibly live with people who are un unclean and impure, unclean and impure by their very nature and by their willful disobedience is evident. How can God and people be at one? Chapter 16 describes this special day where that happens. It's only temporary, but just for a moment, everything is sort of put right. Now, the day starts with the chief priest bringing a bull and a ram to offer for himself and his household. You see that in the first verses. Anyone involved in the proceedings here needed to do some serious preparation at the beginning of the Day of Atonement. This was the one day in the year, you see, where someone was going to enter into and go behind the curtain and go right into the most holy place in the tabernacle. You never went behind that curtain, except on this one day. The chief priest's going to go in there. So the priests then started by, they had to wash. So they're going to wash themselves with water, get themselves really, really clean. You can read about it in chapter 16. And then once they got themselves nice and clean, they had to put on the special high priestly garments, the linen garments, right down to basically linen underpants that only the priests were allowed to wear. Put a turban on their heads, a sash around their waist, covered in this holy priestly religious linenware. And the chief priest would also obtain then from the community of Israel two goats and a ram to offer for the people. And once he had offered the sacrifices for his own sin, he would then take those two goats and present them before the Lord. And lots would be cast so that one goat would be chosen to be the scapegoat. That's, that's got into our language, hasn't it? The idea of a scapegoat. That's the lucky goat on the day of atonement. Because the other goat is the one that's going to be sacrificed. The scapegoat gets released. Later on, you see, at the end of the ceremony, at the end of all the proceedings of the day, the priest will place his hands on that scapegoat. We read about it just earlier symbolic of laying the sins of the people on it, all their guilt, all their shame, put on this goat, and then it would be released into the wilderness. And the people could watch from their tents as their sins were removed and walked away and vanished. Beautiful symbol, isn't it? But before that, for that to be possible, actually, judgment had to fall. The other goat was for it. The other goat had to be sacrificed. And its blood had to be taken behind the curtain where it would be sprinkled. Now, that was a dangerous business. And you can imagine, only just recently two people have died in that very place, doing it wrong. 
any wrong step here. It's like trying to approach a nuclear reactor or something like that. You do not want to get any step wrong, do you? It's more dangerous than that. Anything that's not done exactly according to God's design is going to mean sudden death in this scenario. The high priest is going to go into the place where God's presence dwelt. An absolutely holy place. The blood's going to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that's behind that curtain. So carefully, the high priest takes a censer and puts some hot coals into it. And then he takes two great handfuls of incense and puts them onto the coals. So you've got billowing thick smoke and incense coming up. And he's going to put that. I mean, if, I, if it was me, I would be like, stick my hand through the curtain first with the censer. And just let that whole room just fill up with smoke so you can't see anything. You do not want your eyes to see the holy God. It's a matter of life and death. These sacrifices would atone for the sins of the people. It would mean that God could, could dwell in their midst with them. If the high priest fails to do this right, it's going to be disaster for the nation. And so you can imagine the people holding their breath as they're watching from their tents to see whether this will be done right. Now, how would they know that it was done? How would they know that all had gone well, that it had worked? Well, we read it earlier. When all was done, verse 23 tells us. Take a look at verse 23, chapter 16. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments that he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. A pile of empty linen clothes folded at the entrance of the tent will show the people that atonement has been made. You're looking, and then you look, look, there's the clothes. There they are. A nice little pile of linen. It's been done. It's done. He's been successful. He wasn't killed. He's made the sacrifice. He's done the task. Now, this morning we were in John chapter 20, where we read that Peter and John arrived at the tomb of Jesus. Ha have a look at what we read there. John chapter 20, verse 6 to 7. Simon Peter, who was behind him, you remember they're running to the tomb? He arrived and went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Then a few verses later, look, verse 11. We've got Mary here. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Is it ringing any bells? That's your Easter egg, by the way. Brothers and sisters, as the scriptures come together from Genesis all the way through, do you see? We see that Jesus, he is our atoning sacrifice once for all. The disciples see a pile of empty linen clothes folded at the entrance to a dark room. Angels in a remake of the mercy seat, there they are seated at either end of where the body had rested. 
John sees the strips of linen, the folded cloth, and he knows, he knows it's been done. The Saviour has done it. Sin has been atoned for. God and man at one. But this time it's once for all. There's no going back in. This is a once for all event. The curtain comes down. It is torn in two. Through Jesus Christ, now all may come boldly and without fear into the loving, favourable presence of God. That is what Jesus achieved for us, the first Easter. And so the writer to the Hebrews reminisces, saying, day after day, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands and performs his religious duties Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's our saviour.